Amen. Thank you so much, Ruben, and thank you, worship team. We really sincerely appreciate all the time that you guys invest in doing this every week, serving in this way, and, and making your heart so uh, vulnerable and open, and, and thank you so much, uh, everybody that gets to be a part of our worship services uh, these Sundays. My name is Chad Mason. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, the pastor of Mobilization and Global Impact. It's an honor and a blessing to have an opportunity to preach to you again. Uh, some of you may not remember, uh, but before I came to Calvary, I was a senior pastor at a small church, and I got to preach every week, and uh, so it's really exciting to have an opportunity again to be with you. Uh, one of the, the messages I get to share with you today is one of my favorite messages of all time, and I hope that it'll be obvious as we go through it. It's exciting for me to read about this and to study it this week, and, and just to, to return to what I think is one of the most central stories in the book of Acts. And, uh, and so let's, let's jump into it. I want to ask you a question as we get started, and it really has to do with, with a moment in your life where everything that happened up until then changed. Have you had those moments? Have you had an experience where, where what you expected and what you've been preparing for and everything that you've done in a moment's notice looked different from there on? Uh, it, it may be a tragedy. A lot of people would talk about maybe an accident where they, ever they lost everything or, or when somebody close to them uh, passed away or, or, or some sort of tragedy. Sometimes it's a, it's a really great thing. Maybe it's the moment that you were proposed to or that you proposed to someone or the moment you found out that you were going to have a child or the moment when the child was born. Uh, maybe it was, it, it, it's something more, more, more like what we read in our story today. Maybe it's the moment where God, this God that made everything steps into your life and, and this, this fabric that is reality that we see with our, our physical eyes is, is torn and the spiritual life that we know is there but we don't get to see kind of enters in. Maybe it was that moment where everything that had, had happened to you up until that moment was changed and everything looking forward uh, is redefined. Well, that's the story that we're going to read today. It's, it's actually an, a very unique story in all of Scripture. There's only a few places where God steps in and interacts person to person with people. You might think of like Moses in the Old Testament that went up on Mount Sinai and uh, his face was glowing as he came down the mountain because the, the, the writers said that he, he met face to face with God. You know, there's very few moments like that in Scripture, but this is one of them. And, uh, and this story is, is incredible because the, the moment is unlike any other place. We, we, we all, if you're a follower of Jesus, have experienced a moment where our life changes, where we've been converted is the word that we use in, in a church, uh, from who we were before to who God is going to make us now. And, and, and before that, and, and even during that, with this, this idea that we can be converted is, is really simple, that who we were is changed. We use the word reborn. You know, over the last few months, we've been studying uh, the, the book of Acts, and our, our title is really The Spirit on the Move. It's looking and tracking the movement of God in the early church, according to Luke, the author. And he's telling the story of how the early church emerged, right? How it went from a movement following Jesus himself to being a movement that followed his followers, right? And you've got these 12 disciples that begin to, to shape and, and change. They're filled with the Spirit as they go, and the whole church emerges. And you've got these 12 guys that go from leading... Um, just themselves and a few to leading 3,000 
is added in one day. A couple chapters later, 4,000 more are added. And you just begin to see that something incredible is happening around these men. And, uh, and it, it's formed around the spirit of Jesus working through them in the lives of the, the people that they're talking to and in the area where they're working. Uh, up until this moment, it's been much of it's been in Jerusalem. Um, but even in that, I want to highlight a few people as we, as we move forward. Luke takes some time here to focus on this, this, this uh, element that I think it's easy to miss if you, don't, if you don't notice it. And I want to draw some attention to it. One of the great things about this early story in Acts is that a lot of the stories are not about the twelve. They're about men who've been trained by the 12, who've been discipled by them, been empowered by them. And, uh, and if you think back over the last few weeks, you might remember some names like Barnabas. Barnabas is this guy from Cyprus. He's not even from Jerusalem. And he, he sells a field and, field and gives it to the disciples. And the disciples use the money to help the poor. You might remember the whole list of guys that are empowered by the disciples to act as deacons, to care for the hurting and the broken, specifically the, the distribution of food. And uh, one of those guys is highlighted. His name is Stephen. And there's, there's two whole chapters of the book of Acts focused on Stephen. It's the single largest story in the entire book. So this guy that we really don't know a lot about, Stephen, stands up and gives a sermon in chapter 7 that's one of the most powerful sermons. In fact, Saul, the guy that we're going to talk about today, Saul quotes that sermon over and over and over again throughout his ministry. You can find it in different parts of Acts and in different parts of his, his letters. And, uh, and so this guy, Stephen, that we don't know a lot of, is fully empowered and given the ability to not only speak the truth of Jesus, but to do it boldly, even in front of his impending doom when he, he's, he's killed for his faith. There's some other guys you might think of. Last week, uh, we talked about Philip, the, the evangelist. Some people think Philip is one of the 12, but he's not. He's a new convert to faith. And if you think about the way that he acted, it's, it's really powerful because these new believers that are maybe they're converts from, from Pentecost or maybe uh, from some time after that, these guys like Philip are fully formed. I mean, he lacks in nothing. If you remember, he goes and pioneers a mission to Samaria. And there there's healings and, and God is acting and moving powerfully in the place. So much so that some of the apostles go to see if it's really true. Right? And then God moves Philip and he goes and speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch. That's the story last week. And then God literally takes Philip and moves him in the spirit. Well, that's, what does that even mean? He's like, uh, like transported from one place to another. Uh, we don't see any of the apostles having that kind of uh, miracle happening around them. And yet you've got these men who are semi-unknown to us that are acting in ways. One of the most beautiful parts of this, the Ethiopian eunuch is that, that Philip, a guy who's not the 12, baptizes the eunuch while on the side of the road. Some people think that the leadership has the task to do the ministry, and it's really obvious early in Acts. Luke is really working hard. He's intentionally drawing attention to the inclusion and the development of key leaders that are outside that inner circle of the apostles. One of the things that we have to be aware of is a key element to the success of the early church it's depending on the ability of that inner circle, those apostles, to hand off leadership to others as they're developed and trained. So if you're following along on the notes, the first point is that the Spirit includes and develops new leaders constantly. So let's move on and talk about our story today. So we're going to introduce you to this guy named Saul. Uh, we, we've already met him in Acts. Saul was there. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. It says that he held the coats of the men who were throwing stones. Uh, the really simple takeaway from that is that he was not only um, there and present, but he was, he was condoning it. He was, in a, he was behind it. He was very much in favor of the death of this man. And so as we start talking about Saul, you have to realize, we have to understand 
that this guy was really, really well trained and that he was a worshiper of God. He was a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a worshiper of the God of the Old Testament. Uh, it's, really, it's very likely that as a Pharisee, he had memorized the entire Old Testament. And if it wasn't the entire thing, it was huge sections. Like he might could quote the entire book of Isaiah, something along those lines. He, he knew the stories of God's faithfulness throughout the Old Testament. He knew of David and Goliath. He knew of the powerful moments where God had stepped in in history and changed the the. the, the the future of Israel, the Israel, Israeli people, the Israelite people. He knew the stories of their unfaithfulness that had led to the Babylonian captivity. And he was really, really, really serious about making sure that people didn't make those mistakes again. If you look at the life of a Pharisee, they tried to live perfectly by the law and they added so many laws in addition to the actual law of Moses so they would never get even close to offending God the way that they had in their past. There, it, was, it was so much of a look at, this is what our ancestors did poorly, we're gonna make sure we don't do that again. This is a, such a big key that, 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 that Saul, as we, get it, as we first see him in this picture, in this story, he's so angry at the heresy of Christians who would say that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's so outside of his mindset that even though he understood that there was a coming Messiah, it was, it was offensive to him in every single way that these people were saying this Jesus who was crucified was that Messiah. This is a really important thing. Sometimes you can be so focused on the religion that represents God that you forget the heart of the God that it serves. This is Saul to a T. This is, this is actually, we could unpack this in big ways. He had the, the authority given to him by the government. The, the chief priests were part of the government in Jerusalem. He had the authority given to him to go and persecute these Christians in Damascus. Think about the power that he wielded as a religious uh, zealot to make sure that God wasn't offended by the lives of these people. So much so that he could arrest them and even, and even murder them. This is huge. If we're not careful today, we can be so zealous for the God that we say we serve that we can actually do terrible things in his name that would be far from the Jesus that we know, far from the heart. In fact, there's whole periods of Christian history where, where the whole church is defined. There were, there were armies that painted the cross on their shields and on their helmets, and they went to war in the name of Jesus, massacring people in their wake thinking that they were doing this in God's name. They were defending God's truth in some form. So many times today, I see my friends on Facebook fighting some sort of verbal war, some rhetorical war, trying to stand up and defend God. And you know what? Sometimes I think they miss the heart of God. They, they, they get some piece of it. They understand that God cares about people who are hurting and broken, but some reason they think that because God's offended by sin that he hates the people who are acting in a certain way. And that is not the God that we know and love. There's a lot to it, and we could spend a lot of time there. We're going to move on. In this story, you're going to see it really, really clearly. Saul is the perfect example of the guy that has God fully focused in his heart. He has God behind him. He's confident. He's, he is funded. He has trained. He could, he could tell you all the theological, theological reasons why he's doing what he's doing. And then he meets Jesus, and everything he knows changes. So look here, we're going to start in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that the, the, the reporting in, the, in scriptures doesn't make people look very good. Do you know, this is, the guy writing this, Luke, is one of Paul's disciples. So where does Luke get this information, do you think? He gets it from Paul. So do you think when they're talking about this, Paul says, let me tell you, Luke, that day I was breathing murderous threats. <laughs> like I had bloodlust. I was going to go do some bad things and I was excited. I mean, Paul, you could probably leave out some of those details and he would have made this sound like a lot nicer, you know? Paul, with his good heart, serving God with everything that he is, was on his way to Damascus to defend the heart of God. You know, it could be some nice flowery way, but he doesn't say this. He's got, he's breathing murderous threats is the language that Luke uses. What an incredible boldness to say that. And how, you must think about the heart of Paul to say, when you tell this story, tell it this way. What an incredible thing. So you know the story, he goes on, as he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling around Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. This is the moment. It's the moment where everything changes. Everything that Paul had known up until this time is redefined. We use the word again in Christianity that he's reborn because he's a new creature, he's a new person. And honestly, everything that he had lived for up until this moment changed. Think about how he must have felt. Everything he had spent his life pursuing is now shown to be bankrupt. It's empty. The, the foundations of Paul's lives crumble in one interaction with Jesus. There's also just this really mystical thing that happens here too that's incredible. It's like this, this, uh, this screen that separates us from understanding and seeing spiritual things is like unzipped and Jesus just steps into reality. And it just is shocking if we think about that that's actually normal. That there is, that the, the, the likelihood that when Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age, that he's actually with us, Reuben. Like, with us, all the time. We don't see him, and so we act like he's not there. But, but he's just like one zipper pull from stepping into your life and making such a massive change. Paul, the guy that was trying to go capture and kill Christians, is now a Christian. And he moves from this moment into an incredible ministry that doesn't stop until he later dies for Christ. What an incredible, incredible shaking of a man's foundation. So in verse 8, it tells us that Paul got up from the ground. He opened his eyes but could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. I just have to imagine that in those three days, Paul is lost. He's confused. He's thinking, I knew you, God. I, I knew everything there was to know about you. How did I miss this? If you are Jesus, then what does that mean for all these other things? His whole life is being redefined. I, I think it must have been a lot like Ju Jonah in the, in the belly of the whale when he's praying, when I sunk down to the depths of the mountains, you were there. Because everything that Jonah had known had been redefined by this moment. And here it is, Paul is in these three days of darkness where he can't see I'm sure he doesn't know what to say to his friends and his Pharisee friends probably don't know what to say to him. What Paul experienced on the road redefined all of his previous life. And here's a really interesting thing. We get to meet another disciple that we just don't know much about. 
So God turns to a guy named Ananias. And uh, Luke doesn't say he's the pastor of the church in Damascus. doesn't say that he's the leader of the disciples in Damascus. He says he's a disciple. The story is all about this one guy, this faithful disciple, and this guy that it's the only place he appears. We don't know anything else about him. We don't know if he'd been doing this for a long time. We don't know what he does after this. We don't know what the church in Damascus looks like after Paul. But we know that in, in Damascus, there's a disciple named Ananias. We're in verse 10. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on, safe, on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In the vision, he has seen the man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. It's a relatively simple command. I love that God's talking to him. Again, you think Luke, maybe hearing the story, was thinking, really, you heard God telling you? I, tell me how this looked again. You know, he's going to make sure all the details are correct. And then here, I, I love this. He could have skipped it, but he leaves it in here. He says, Lord, Ananias responded, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So it's just interesting to me that, you know, sometimes we know that God is all powerful. We know that he is everywhere and, and uh, we know that he knows all. And yet we might have these conversations. Hey God, did you really mean that? Like this guy is kind of a bad guy. He's hurting a lot of people. You really want me to go there and do that? And look at the Lord's response in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Again, I hear Paul telling this story to Luke and Luke writing this down. Like you think Ananias and you think, man, what an incredible moment for Paul to say, this is what I was meant for. God, before he even appeared to me on the road to Damascus, knew what he was doing. So then here's a beautiful statement. Then Ananias went. He didn't argue about it. He didn't like, hey, let's call a meeting and see if this is a smart um, call to action. He did it. So uh, he went to the house. He entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who, you, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he could see again. Beautiful picture here. What does he do? He gets up and says he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Again, Luke telling the story wants to emphasize that before Paul did anything else, he didn't get up and shower and get ready and, and, uh, and go grab some dinner. I haven't eaten in three days. No, he went straight to get baptized. The first active movement of a follower of Jesus is to identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Who I was before has died and who I am now is alive. Anyone that knew Paul before this would have been offended by the fact that Paul had been baptized. What an incredible thing. Paul wants this to be very clear. I am a follower of Jesus and I identify with his death and resurrection. What an incredible moment in the life of Paul. So as you think about this, we have a religious fanatic turned follower of Jesus, a guy that worshiped God before and worshiped God at the end of the story and totally transformed in the middle. What an incredible thing that this guy worshiped the same God on both sides and yet one way he's working against God as a worshiper of God and on this side, he's following God's heart and loving God with his actions. So there's a lot that stands out. So we finish up, there's, there's a few things I wanna just charge through real quick. Paul is one of the least likely people to lead the young church. 
And you think about it, before Paul, there's really very little action that, that pursues uh, people outside of Jerusalem. We have Philip going to Samaria. We have some, some believers who went as far as Antioch, which would have been Syria. But then through the life of Paul out of Antioch, there's launched these missionary movements that went all the way to Rome. This tells us something really important. <sighs> when we think about God's enemies and the people that we need to defend ourselves against, we may realize that some among them are the very people God is choosing to lead the mission of the church in the future. There is not one person alive today that God doesn't love and care about and have a purpose for. And as such, every single person, whether we agree with them, whether we like them, whether we think that they're um, uh, on the earth to, draw, to make us angry, whoever they might be, God has a purpose for them. And as such, we should treat them with great dignity. They're made in God's image. They are called by God, whether they choose to follow him or not, they are his. We need to treat them as such. Ananias and the disciples in Damascus have every reason to reject Saul. They have every reason to actually fight against him. If they were to grab swords and say we're defending ourselves against him, nobody would have thought that was, was too strange. The guy is trying to kill them. And yet they did the opposite. They welcomed him. They cared for him. The next few verses says that those disciples, he spent two or three days there with them in Damascus. They become the early influencers of Paul as a believer. These guys, we don't even know their names other than Ananias. We don't even know who they were and how they influenced him, what they taught him and trained them to do. And yet we know that it must have been meaningful because immediately Paul begins preaching in Damascus. The transformation of Paul is absolutely complete. After his eyes are healed and he's baptized, he immediately goes out and begins teaching people about what he knows. And what does he know? He knows that Jesus appeared to him and that everything he knew before was secondary. But now, as he understands it through the life of Christ, he has a lot to share. Number three is that the Spirit calls all believers to step in faith to pursue the mission God has set before them. I love verse 22. It says that Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The, 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 the guy that he came there to persecute is the one that he leaves worshiping. And what an incredible thing along the way. He's so passionate about it that the, the, <clears throat> the Pharisees and followers of the law in Damascus are so angry they try to kill him. They want to murder him right there. So he's there to murder Christians. And at the end, he's the one trying to flee the murdering himself. So they lower him out through a rope, through the, uh, uh, a hole in the wall and, and, and let him out at night so he can escape the, the plan. So here's a few things to, to, to consider as we finish. No matter how far from God you feel, no matter how bad you think you are, God made you and he loves you and he wants to call you to himself. He wants you to surrender yourself to him so that your whole life can be redefined with him at the center and then even all those things that you thought were bad, the things that you did with malintent, all those things can be redefined with Christ in the center and he can redeem it all. He's with you. He's drawing your, himself to you. And honestly, what happened with Paul is not very different than what happens with everyone that surrenders their life to Jesus. You come to a moment in your life when you realize all that you've done for yourself is not enough. And that this God that made you loves you and wants you. Every believer, every disciple, every church member has a ministry in the kingdom of God. 
Ananias in this story may seem small. His contribution is not lauded. It's not saying about, we don't have books about how amazing Ananias is, but his contribution will never, you, can't, you cannot underestimate the impact of his role. Look, I want you to see this slide real quick. It's the, the books of the New Testament. There's 27 of them. Um, you've probably seen this many, many times. But the next image is, is what the New Testament would look like without Paul and his disciples' influence. And, uh, and so you've really, look at this, you've got 11 books, only two of those are more than, three of them are more than, than five chapters. And so you think about that, the New Testament as we know it without the influence of Paul would be so much smaller. Think about how you would understand the church without Acts or Romans or without First and Second Corinthians. What an incredible influence. And this guy, Ananias, got to baptize him and be the first one to, to influence his heart and life. What an incredible, incredible thing. Here's, here's the point. We need the whole church, every one of you, pursuing God to see the mission of the church accomplished. We cannot do it alone. This moment where Paul is reborn is so familiar. The conversion is a literal 180, and it's the same thing that every one of us must face. Before this, Paul is respected. He's powerful. He's arrogant. He's confident. He's wealthy. He's overzealous. He has everything that he thought his life needed to have. But after this moment, Paul often is mocked and chased and beaten and maligned. And eventually he dies for his faith. He's cheered on by a small group of people that love Jesus in the ancient world. And yet his love for Jesus is enough. This moment sticks with Paul for the rest of his life so that he's never without question. He remembers what is most important. The call of Jesus to each of us is indeed wonderful. It's incredible. The call of our, cre our creator to be fully formed, to, instore, to be fully restored in relationship. But it's also the call to come and die. To come and follow Jesus as he is and to die to ourselves as we pursue his cause in the world around us. In finding Christ, we find that everything that we want in our flesh pales in comparison to the relationship that we can have in him. And so that number four is very simple. The call of God to all men and women is the call to come and die. You can hear the words of James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote in James chapter one. I imagine I can just see James sitting with Paul telling him these words. Consider it pure joy, Paul. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Paul's journey to Damascus is in many ways like all of our journey. And the question is, are you willing to hear the voice of Jesus to surrender your life, your purpose, your pride, your plan, and follow him wherever he would lead you to? A couple things as you maybe consider this today. Take some time. Get, get outside your, your, your um, family for a few minutes. Get, take five minutes or 10 minutes and get in a quiet place and just seek God. Say, Lord, what am I missing? Am I, am, I, am I following you with all that I am? Maybe you've never asked Jesus to be your king. Take, take some time today and say, God, do you really care about me? Are you really there? Do you really love me? And see what he does. When you ask Jesus to be the king of your life, your world is redefined through him. So surrender your life today, whether you're a brand new believer, not a believer, or even been in your faith for a long time. Take some time. And just surrender to him. Next is find a way to be engaged in the world around you. You have a ministry. 
It's not the ministers of the church that do ministry. The ministers of the church equip the church for ministry. We're giving you the tools. We're praying that God would use you to do great things in his name. And if you're not sure how, come and ask and we'll try to pray and help any way that we can. We don't know everything, but we sure can help as best we can. We've tried to give you some tools even through COVID-19. We've tried to give you this website, this prayer, care, and share. Pray. Pray for the lost, the broken, the hurting, those that you know who are sick. Um, Pray for them. Ask that God would work on their behalf. Ask that he would reveal himself to them the way that he revealed himself to Saul. Pray for them. Care about their needs. There's, there are many physical needs around us right now. Open your, your heart to, to reach out and meet the needs of those around you. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's physical. Maybe they need food or water. Or maybe they just need someone to listen and care. And lastly, be prepared to share the hope of Jesus. You might say, Chad, I don't know the right tools. I learned the Roman road, but I can't remember it anymore. That's okay. Paul never had the Roman road. What you have is an experience with Jesus that changed you. Share that experience. For me, it was when I was in fifth grade. I went to a camp, and a missionary was talking about a Jesus that changed lives in Africa, and I dared to ask, if he can change lives in Africa, can he change lives in Arkansas? And my life has never been the same. Everything that I had done up until that moment, albeit short, I was in fifth grade, was redefined, and my life has been so different since. He can do the same for you. Share the hope that Jesus has given you. Lastly, surrender. Surrender your plans, your resources, your pride, and let Jesus use you to extend his kingdom wherever he would send you. That's what this is about today. The story of Paul is incredible. It's amazing. We get a close view of what Jesus did in his heart and life. But it's not that different than what he'll do in your heart and life if you let him. Today, take some time to meet with God and let him speak to you. Let him tell you what's next. Let that curtain be taken down and open your spiritual heart to let Jesus speak to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your work, for your word, and for your people, Father. We thank you that you've risen up leaders throughout history, God, who carry the call forward who stand in the gap, who love and care for the lost, who teach and train new believers and young believers and new disciples. We thank you so much that so many can step into and up to uh, caring for and discipling others and making disciples that look like and act like you, Jesus. We pray, God, that you would give us the strength in these days to follow you with everything that we are, that we would surrender every part of us, that, God, you would use us for your kingdom and for your glory. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.